Hi, I'm Becky O'Connor. And I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're going to be talking about why investors have been deserting the stock market in 2022, and why they should instead be keeping calm and carrying on rather than panicking. So we're recording this on the afternoon of Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister and things have actually calmed down somewhat. So perhaps we're going to see a change in behaviour. But what what we have seen, particularly in the last few weeks, is some evidence of people panicking, um, whether that's in response to news of pensions and difficulties um, that some defined benefit schemes have had meeting cash calls from the funds that back them and that leading to a a spiral of events really that led to some people choosing to try and take money out of their pension or whether it's just people with ISIS selling up their funds and moving their money into cash uh, because they are nervous about what's happening in the markets Uh, and really that that was that preceded the uh, mini budget the now disastrous mini budget, as we now know. And since the beginning of the year, in fact, the value of some funds and stocks and shares have been falling and it has prompted some people to rethink their investments. So Kyle, you've got a bit of insight into what people have actually been selling and also some thoughts about why. Um, Has it been a particular type of fund that we've seen people sell up? It's been um, pretty much across the board and it's been since the beginning of the year, really. You know, way before the um, the mini budget, and um, obviously the now three prime ministers that we've had this year. And just to just put some figures on this, fund statistics from the Investment Association they monitor the amount of inflows and outflows that funds uh, generate each month. And in, an inflow is basically where more investors are putting money into funds rather than withdrawing, and then outflows the um, the opposite of that. And just to put the figures on that. Since the beginning of the year, 14.6 billion has been withdrawn by investors to the end of August. And out of those eight months, every month apart from one, there's been outflows, meaning that more money has been withdrawn than invested. And that one month was April, which I assume was related to early bird ISA investors, as some people do tend to at the start of the tax year, put quite a lot of money into ISAs, you know, if they can, and um, to take advantage of, um, of the the new tax year. And in terms of fund types, it's, you know, across the board, investors have been selling, you know, equities, bonds, and alternatives um, since the beginning of the year. I mean, in recent months, there has been a pickup in terms of people buying bonds, but um, equities um, still remain um, firmly out of favour. And in particular, the UK stock market is being shunned by UK investors and also international investors. And um, the UK market's actually been one of the better performing markets this year given that um, it has a lot of exposure to old economy stocks and a lot of these companies pay dividends. And um, those types of companies, they've been in favour with investors in response to rising uh, levels of inflation and higher interest rates. And just to put those figures into context, obviously, that's a, you know, these, are, these are big numbers. You know, some people might question, OK, is, is 14.6 billion being withdrawn since the start of the year to the end of August? Is that a big deal? Well, but to put them into context... Over the past decade, every single year, there's been more, there's been inflows into funds. So more money's been put in than withdrawn. So last year, there was £43.6 billion invested. So if you compare that to what's been happening in the first eight months of the year, that's, that's a pretty big difference. What has been highly unusual is that there has the sort of safer investments, the likes of money market funds, they've not necessarily been popular. 
when you know investors are nervous, these types of funds tend to become more popular. But due to the fact that inflation is so high, even though the um, the interest that those funds pay has gone up, it is still well below inflation. So those types of funds, they've not been attracting the sort of usual crowd that will go to those sort of funds when it's a risk-off period, as it is at the moment. So it sounds like a kind of wholesale rejection almost of every single asset class, with the exception of bonds more recently, which sounds quite dramatic and quite scary. And I just, I mean, there's there's so much to unravel here, but I just wonder how much of it is to do with political upheaval and uncertainty, how much to do with Russia and Ukraine, how much to do with post-COVID inflation, rising interest rates and the end of QE. It would be really good to understand, wouldn't it? Like, to what degree all of these things are affecting the situation so that we can maybe have some sense of what's going to pick up first and what's going to improve in the future. And it feels like at the moment, although we know the politics has had some impact recently, it's quite hard to know how much each thing is responsible for what's going on. Well, all the things you've mentioned, Becky, they're part of a really long worry list for investors. You know, if, when I speak to fund managers, typically, typically ask them, you know, reasons to be positive and reasons to be negative. In terms of reasons to be optimistic, they're really scratching their heads at the moment to come up with um, any sort of ideas, really. Of course, if the Russia-Ukraine war ended, I mean, that would be a positive, you know, for obviously for, for humanity as well as markets. But, you know, in addition to the points that you just made about headwinds, yeah, yeah, obviously the war is not helping. Inflation being at its highest level in decades, that's not helping. Interest rates being on the rise. There's also signs of a slowdown in China's economy. And also the US market, which is the most influential of all, that's been firmly out of favour this year. Year to date, the S&P 500 is down just over 20%. And the, um, the technology index, the NASDAQ, that's down just over 30%. And there's, you know, there's an old stock market saying that, um, you know, if the US catches a cold, then so does the rest of the world. That does apply to investments as well. I've just been sort of daring to feel optimistic that Rishi Sunak's appointment might resolve everything and make, I mean, we know that markets have responded well to it in the sense that gilt yields have stabilised and everything, but it doesn't kind of undo all of those bigger macro global geopolitical issues that are also affecting markets, does it? No, it doesn't. After all, you know, stock markets, they hate uncertainty. And there still is uncertainty, you know, even though there's now a new prime minister um, who is, you know, he's viewed as a more sort of business friendly politician that's with the markets and that's led to calm down the bond markets. But, you know, unfortunately, the consensus view among economists is that the UK, you know, it's still likely to enter a recession next year. You know, interest rates are still going to go up. I think the latest predictions now are that, you know, by next spring, they could be as high as 5%. I mean, that's, that's you know, quite notably below the sort of 6% predictions that were, that were given after um, Liz Truss's um, mini budget. But still, I mean, it's, you know, if I can see why, why a lot of investors are being cautious at the moment when they see all these negative headlines and the fact that the UK has not yet entered the recession. Yeah. But I mean, from a practical point of view, though, so if, if everybody's putting out of the markets. I mean, aside from what they're doing with their money once they've sold out, which you know we, we can talk about in a bit. But I mean, is it a case of if pe- more and more people are leaving, that's sort of self-fulfilling and somebody's going to be left 
carrying the can. And then, you know, if you are remaining in the market, you kind of don't want that to be you, but also maybe you do because maybe if you're still in the market when when we hear bottom if anybody's calling the bottom i don't know but then um you know if you if you have got spare money to put back in then it's a good time to do that so i guess first off like if from a practical point of view if loads of people are selling what are the implications for other investors and are we already seeing some of those so yeah i think it's very important to explain this to people because you know there might be people panicking when they see at the moment that there's, you know, X amount of outflows coming out of funds. So most funds, they're liquid. And that means that investors, they shouldn't have problems withdrawing their money. And liquidity, which is a you know piece of fund management lingo that um, you know, I think investors should get to grips with, it's basically a fund's access to liquid assets, for example, cash, or assets that can be quickly and easily converted into cash without losing value. So funds, they're daily dealing. So when there's more sellers than buyers, the fund manager has to raise cash to redeem investors. And this is done by either dipping into cash or selling some of its underlying holdings. And certain funds, you know, there's certain rules that help avert a potential liquidity crisis. For example, funds can't hold more than 10% in unlisted holdings. These unlisted holdings, they're inherently illiquid due to the fact that they're not listed on the stock market. But of course, that 10% limit, you know, it, it is a small percentage. But of course, the what happened with Neil Woodford's fund, in the end, he had around 10% or more in unlisted companies, and that did cause that fund to suspend. So, um, and there are certain assets, such as, you know, property that are always going to potentially have uh, liquidity problems. I mean, the, the point to make is, for most funds, they should be able to sell their investments to meet investor redemptions. But the opposite is true when a fund invests in illiquid assets, which which you know it could be unlisted companies or it could be property. Because of course, you know, funds that invest in property, they're investing in bricks and mortar. And you know, it's hard for them to meet withdrawals on a day-to-day basis. And that's because the sales, of course, of shops, offices, and factories that are held in the portfolios. But these sales cannot be quickly or easily arranged, particularly at times of market uncertainty. So therefore, it's, um, it's very difficult to raise uh, money quickly. So, I mean, that's, that's the first point about um, potential fund suspension to make. How, how do you know if you've got a liquid or an illiquid fund? Does it, should it be obvious to you from the very beginning? I think it's a case of looking at what the fund's doing and what, it, and what it's investing in. If it's investing in assets that are illiquid, then it may potentially have liquidity problems if there's a sudden rush to the exits from investors. And if that happens, the fund is suspended. And what that means is that you you know you cannot access your money for a certain time period to allow the fund manager time to sell the investments. Obviously, what the fund manager doesn't want to do is risk a fire sale and you know sell the assets at, you know at, at distressed prices. What they want to do, they want to have the time then to, you know, they want a bit longer time basically to, to sell those investments. So then you get your money back at a better price. That's the trade off, really. Of course, I mean, I think funds offering daily dealing, then it should give you daily dealing. But in these sort of stressed time periods, surely for the end investor, it is better that they spend to give them that time to sell those assets at a potentially a better price. 
I suppose the only difficulty is if you actually need the money, isn't it? Which, you know, then obviously if a fund suspends that, that's not good news for you if you can't access your life savings because, you know, the majority of it is in a particular fund. So I guess it's worth people reviewing, isn't it? What, you know, where their money is. And if if they have got enough in liquid investments, if they are expecting to need the money anytime soon. And it's, you know, it's a lesson here really in, you know, don't put too much of your overall portfolio in one fund or a couple of funds that invest in a liquid assets. If it's a much smaller sort of exposure, say five, ten percent of your overall portfolio, then obviously, yeah, of course, it's not ideal if you can't get your money out if you need it. But if it's only five or ten percent of the portfolio, it's a much better place to be rather than say having the whole of your ISA or seventy-five percent of your portfolio in one or a couple of funds that invest in illiquid assets. I also just wanted to explain that with outflows, obviously there's the risk for those funds, as we just discussed, that invest in illiquid assets that they could suspend. But also when money is coming out of a fund, then that's not good news really because because the fund manager is selling his or her investments, then effectively they're four sellers. And, and quite often, you know, people are selling funds when performance is going through a short-term time period of um, underperforming. That can then make things worse because they're they're effectively selling their own portfolio. You know, they're, they're not doing what they they've got. They've got hands tied behind their back to an extent because they need to sell when they do not necessarily want to sell in order to um, redeem investors. Yeah, and this is the the difficult thing about recessions, isn't it? And what happens to investment? It is that self fulfilling prophecy of a lack of confidence, begetting a certain type of behaviour that then makes things worse, which then further dents confidence. And it's you know it's what breaks that cycle. I guess we don't know yet, but there is a way out, isn't there? In terms of illiquid investments and being able to still make them, there is still an option for people in the form of good old investment trusts. I'll leave it to you to explain that though. So investment trusts, which are they're similar to funds because they you know they invest in a you know basket of um, shares or different types of assets, but they they do have a few bells and whistles which make them different from funds. And one of those bells and whistles is that um, with investment trusts, a fixed number of shares are issued, and this raises a fixed amount of money for the fund manager to invest in a portfolio of assets. And investment trust shares they're traded on the stock market like other shares. And their share price fluctuates according to demand and supply. And having that um, fixed number of shares, this crucially means that the fund manager does not have to sell or buy shares, depending on whether they are attracting or losing investors. So this does make investment trusts arguably, and I do agree with this, a more suitable vehicle to hold illiquid assets. And um, it also potentially gives the fund manager greater sort of freedom really to take a long-term view when running a portfolio because they're not constantly thinking if money's coming out of the fund, what do I need to sell? If they get a large rush of money coming into the fund, they've you know they've got it all on their hands and thinking, what am I going to do with it? You know, with a lot of money coming into a fund, there's there's also the risk and danger of you know the, the fund manager not being able to invest it quick enough and then it's going to have to go into cash, which um, can impact performance as well. Yeah. Investment trusts are usually a bit more expensive, aren't they? But for the you know, for the longer term and for these kind of benefits, it can make sense. I mean, you know, in general then, what we're looking at is the problem for individuals of panicking or or just feeling worried and, you know, wanting to sort of take steps to kind of minimize their losses. But also in doing so, you then 
crystallize your losses, which just means that you know you're making them real. So when when you hold shares or investments, it's any kind of fall in the value, any decline in performance is notional, isn't it? It's a paper loss until you actually sell out, and then it becomes a real one. So I guess you know it's whether or not. <laughs> There are going to be more losses in value and, you know, thinking about when you actually need the money rather than taking it out just because of the economic situation now, rather than because of your own wants and needs and plans is all worth thinking about, isn't it? And I suppose with investments that are meant to be long term, then doing anything without sleeping on it for several nights is probably not a very good idea, Um, particularly as we've seen everything sort of change rapidly again politically apparently for the better. You know, I think all of us felt a lot worse two weeks ago about the value of our pensions and investments and perhaps feel a bit better today. So it does go to show that even if you hold your nerve for a few weeks to see what's around the corner, you might be rewarded by, you know, seeing opportunity where a couple of weeks ago you saw, you know, where you felt despair. Yeah, I totally agree, Becky. And, you know, I think it's always well worth remembering that, you know, at times of stock market turbulence, the at the end of the day, volatility, it's part of the deal of investing in the stock market. And it's the price that investors have to pay for the fact that over the long run, putting money into shares rather than leaving it in cash will potentially yield greater rewards. Of course, you know, for, for investors who are concerned about, you know, potentially entering the market at a disadvantageous time and, you know, potentially panic selling on bad news, it's it's worth considering drip feeding money into the market, such as, you know, on a monthly basis rather than all at once. If you invest, say, monthly, then that does away with, well, it reduces the risk that you might put the money into the market just before, you know, a big nasty dip. And this strategy, as you know, Becky, it benefits from pound cost averaging. And, you know, when stock markets fall, those regular investments, they purchase more shares or fund units. And conversely, when stock markets rise, uh, fewer shares and funds are bought. Overall, it should give you a, a smoother ride and you know, it has been a roller coaster ride for investors this year, but um, that should hopefully smooth the up and downs over the long term. Some people are saying now is a buying opportunity as well. And that actually, although young people might feel very concerned about their own futures at times like this, it could be quite a good time to start investing. Unfortunately, lots of people started investing, you know, several months ago and have seen big falls and, and may feel disinclined to carry on investing, having experienced that. But actually, it's, it's that moment, isn't it, when you, well, it's a contrarian thing where you feel that things are bad. Actually, that can be the best time to invest. So in terms of whether or not to invest regularly and monthly in drip feed, obviously that can make sense. But could, it, could that mean it's also a good time to invest a lump sum if some people now think that this is a good buying opportunity is there still justifications for investing a lump sum i mean it depends on the on the on the type of person you are really i think i think that's a big factor because i think you know if you do regular investing rather than all at once i think it does give you greater peace of mind so you know i think it's important to think about your 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 appetite for risk but obviously as you say you know if you if you do invest a lump sum it's a potential chance to pick up some bargains I i think ultimately it depends on your risk attitude more than anything for me personally, at the current time, I mean, I, I'd be much more comfortable regularly investing rather than all at once because, you know, I think this year is proven to expect the unexpected. Yeah. And, I, you know, I suppose if people are setting up, thinking about what they're actually doing with the cash, 
are they leaving it in cash? Are they investing it in property? I mean, we we don't have visibility on what people are doing. You know, we're an investment platform, so we can see what people are doing with their investments, but not once they sell them. And I, I guess it's probably just worth mentioning again that the returns on cash, although they're increasing, savings rates are increasing, they're still well behind inflation. And that should probably also temper your considerations about what to do with any investments that you are selling. And on that note, I would like to thank everyone for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. If you get the chance, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. And keep your questions and talking points coming via Twitter at IIOnTheMoney or email otm at ii.co.uk. We'll be answering them very soon in a future episode. And in the meantime, you can find out more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, ii.co.uk. See you next week.